0: you have to put study and prayer first. And I mean that in a very practical way, like first in the day. The other things are easier to squeeze in, like some of the administrative work. People, you you can't move those around, but making time, whether it's blocking out the whole first three hours of your day or something to do that. I mean, I think the other thing that I've come to is I've fell, fallen into patterns where I'm just responsively studying, so I've got this sermon or this class to teach, but I'm starting to atrophy because I'm not learning new things.
1: Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the CPT Podcast. Today, we have part two of our conversation with CPT fellow Matthew Wilcoxon, who is the Associate Rector of Church of the Resurrection in Washington, D.C. Uh, We... Started this conversation last week, so if you didn't get a chance to listen to part one, I encourage you to go give that a listen, and we will pick up right where we left off last time.
2: Well, talk to us about how you you decided to do a PhD, Matthew, and how you got to Australia where you did your PhD.
0: Well, so the first class that I had at Biola... Uh, on a Wednesday morning in August, uh, 2005, was Mickey Clink, a CPT oh, fellow. Mickey Clink. It was that his, right? I didn't know that. Okay. It was his first class teaching oh. at Biola. Outstanding. Uh, he had, you know, he was a new professor, and uh, it was uh, Bbst 312 Principles of Interpretation or Hermeneutics. Oh, wow. Um, And uh, so, you know, it was, he, he not only taught the class and did a great job, but he interacted with us personally a lot and had us uh, do these reading groups kind of, you know, I guess a lot of times we call it Oxford style. And um, he, he had us reading things that were very thought provoking and challenging about the task of interpretation and he modeled a love for Christ. And, uh, he just pretty instantly became my, my big brother. And, uh, and I thought, Hey, I, I, first of all, I love learning and I'm just reading everything I can. And, uh, I'm getting this positive feedback from this person that's saying, Mm. you have some gifts and, uh, which I I had been lacking in my life, really, you know, kind of growing up mostly fatherless. And, um, Mm. and, and I thought, Oh, I want to be like this guy. Mm. Uh, so I just kept reading and reading and thinking, I want to do a PhD someday. Um, mm. cause I just want to read books and learn more and, and learn Greek. And I, you know, I wanted to, to go all the way. I mean, it was almost instant as soon as I got there that I, I, I wanted to do, um, to do that. So, uh, and then how did I end up in Australia? You know, I mean, a lot of my life, uh, has been, had to be pragmatic and look for the openings that God has provided. Um, yeah. So I took on a ton of debt to go to, to do a bachelor's degree in biblical studies. And uh, then I, I started working at a church as a youth pastor before I even graduated. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wanted to do a master's degree. And the, the practical thing to do was to do that at Talbot because uh, I could do it part-time uh, continue to work at the church. And um, once I finished that, I, I really wanted to do PhD. And and my dream was to go to the UK to be like Mickey and all of you guys. And um, mm-hmm. as I started emailing some folks over there and, and thinking about that, um, you know, it was going to be really cost prohibitive for me personally. Yeah. And um, at the same time, I started talking to a young scholar uh in Australia named Ben Myers and um I just really liked him I I emailed him he got right back to me we skyped the next day and uh he seemed like an impressive fellow and really young and 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 engaging and um and then my wife had previously lived in Australia as well so oh, there's a confluence okay. There's a confluence of a few factors. So she had lived there and they knew these great Christian families that they had kept in touch with. Um, And then, you know, I'm talking to Ben Myers about a PhD there. And then I also through my study and prayer and was, was very interested in Anglicanism. Mm. I wanted to find something that was evangelical that cared about the Bible and a relationship with Jesus, but also had, uh, a deep connection to the history of the church and liturgical worship, and so yeah,
1: I knew that. Where did
0: that Where it, did that interest come from?
1: You, I mean, Cal, you said you grew up in Calvary Chapel traditions, right?
0: Um,
1: and then yeah. Iola, which doesn't strike me as especially liturgically inclined, although I haven't spent much time there.
0: I mean, I think some of it's a. Um, I got burned out on a on some of the church contexts that I had been in and done ministry in which I would describe as very Southern California, seeker friendly, no offense mm. to anyone out there who's, uh, and then at the same time I'm reading old books, you know, and, yeah,
2: yeah.
0: And, and reading church history. And, and I think I have a contemplative mm. temperament anyways. And so how, you know, just really hungering for something that was, was deeper uh, and that was more contemplative and, um, and yet retained all of the good things about evangelicalism. Yes. Mm. And so for me, as I looked around, it was, I was stumbling towards an evangelical Anglicanism. Mm. So, yeah. yeah. And, 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 and Australia was a, a place to, to find that. I, I, cause I knew some things about Sydney and then yeah. I got a full scholarship to go wow. to, to do this PhD at Charles um, Sturt University. and right, Wow, um, that's yeah.
2: brilliant. That's, and you, So you studied systematic theology, and what was the focus of your dissertation research?
0: I went in uh, with this idea that's still a great idea, uh, which is to write on uh, a theology of time, principally interacting with Karl Barth. There's been some things oh, wow. on it. Um, but I after about a year, I realized that the, the dissertation – that I wasn't going to be able to pull off the book I wanted to write or the dissertation I wanted to write.
2: <laughs> you didn't have enough time to do that dissertation on time. Yeah. Wow.
0: <laughs> and um, it it was also going in a, a way that was you know heavily engaged in in some philosophy, and I really wanted to to go down on theology proper at some level or or Mm -hmm. Christology at least. And so I had, um, in the first year, I had read Augustine's Confessions again, which I think was the second time I'd read it. And I looked at book 11 very closely on time. And I, one of the first things I wrote, what I ended up turning into my only journal article, which I need to write some more and I'm going to. But um, so I started this Augustine sort of rabbit trail through that. And then I started noticing, okay, Karl Barth does these really interesting things with God being humble, divine humility. Hmm. And Augustine talks this way too. And,
2: yeah,
0: and has this in a striking way that God is humble. And so I really started saying, Oh, I wonder if there's something I can do in exploring, you know, divine humility in, in Augustine and Karl Barth. And so um, from that, I, I, started developing, you know, a, a constructive, a somewhat constructive account of divine humility that was dealing with Karl Barth and Augustine. And then uh, when I was probably in like two thirds of the way through this, Catherine Zonderegger's systematic theology came out and I, it, it was like, oh, here's the theology of divine humility as well. And um, so really in, uh, these three, became key interlocutors with what does it mean to say God is humble? Can we say that? Um,
2: So yeah. And what what does it mean to say God is humble, Matthew? Because I know, I know in your dissertation you decisively answered that question and figured it out once and for all, (laughs) like all, like all of us PhD students, we finally (laughs) sort our question Ah. out for the rest of scholarship.
0: (laughs) Well, I started with Carl Bart, who, uh, who I end up critiquing pretty significantly. And Uh, for him, he takes, he sort of takes it for granted that humility is, is a subordinate obedience. And uh, so that what the, that the son is obedient to the father and that this, that we see in the economy of salvation is sort of mirrored, I say, uncritically into the divine life. And so there is this, this language in Bart of, of an eternal obedience. And, um, I, I sort of back up and say that is one way that, that we have understood humility just in general, but there's a richer definition of humility that I think emerges. Uh, and that is the use of strength for the sake of, of another. Uh, it's not about subservience. Um, it's about it's actually a, a form of greatness and that the most humble are those who have the most power and use it for the sake of, of others. Yeah. And I find that, that, that actually maps onto something that is, um, imminently true of, of God, not just in Christ's obedience, but of God himself, uh, obviously analogically in a, in a way that we can't even fathom or model in our, in our world. And, and part of this was, um, I don't go into heavily into how we live this out in our own lives, but there are a lot of legitimate critiques about humility and the way that it can be an oppressive thing for certain people. Um, yeah. I guess if you're coming from a background of, of course you have power then yes, you need to be act lowly. Uh, if you're, if you're historically oppressed, um, yeah. that can actually, that's not, not always helpful. Just act lowly, you know, and, mm-hmm. um, it, it can be an oppressive thing. And so constructing a doctrine of, of humility, that's true and rooted in who God is. And that, that can lead to a, a, a thinking about, um, what it means to be humble in mm. in the human sense. And I'll plug a book here, not my own book, well, but yeah. um, we
1: should we should mention your own book because your dissertation was recently published. So, plug your, plug the book you were going to plug and then say where people can find your dissertation if they if they want to read it.
0: Yeah, it's called Divine Humility: God's Morally Perfect Being and it's published by Baylor University Press. Um so you can um buy it on their website or you can buy it on Amazon a, and a, a um, nice
1: hard hardcover.
0: It is a really be- beautiful book and it's um, it's expensive, but it's not as expensive as most university press books. So,
1: yeah. Um, so the other books you were going to mention then?
0: Well, so Baylor, I just reviewed a, and endorsed a book for them, endorsed a book for them that is called the joy of humility. Mm. Um, that's edited by uh, Evan Rosa and, and another fellow, I'm forgetting his name, Ryan, Liz McNally, and uh, it's got it's got some uh, different authors writing chapters in it. It's a really nice book, I think, talking about what it means to be humble as a human person. That's that's helpful in this sense. So hmm.
2: that's excellent. That's excellent. And tell us, so you finished up down in Australia your PhD, and then I think did you you made the move from there directly to your current uh, ministry spot in DC. Is that right, Matthew?
0: Yeah. So, um, I found this posting for a pastoral resident, uh, church planter in residence. I found it through the CPT, uh, website and Facebook mm. page. Oh, how about that? And, hey, hey, hey. uh, yeah, got in touch with Dan Clare here and, um, we, you know, my, for a variety of reasons, my wife and I, the whole time we were in Australia, we we're trying to have children and um, we weren't able to. And mm. Um, mm. so we felt called to come back to the U.S. where where it would have been easier for us to at least turn that desire for children into some care for children in foster care. Mm. And so we were looking for a place to do Anglican ministry in an urban setting and to get engaged in foster care and God opened the door here and I was really excited about being on Capitol Hill and, um, you know, so here we are three years later.
2: I was going to say, what a marvelous door opening for you, Matthew, with those, with that the uh, the combination of those passions and values of you and your wife's man, oh man, to land where you've landed the grace of God, that's incredible.
0: Yeah, I look back and, and see, you know, certainly not a linear path to any of these things, but uh, see God's providence uh, in mm. every at every part.
1: We're here with Matthew Wilcoxon, who is a CPT fellow, and we're talking with Matthew about his story, his uh, education, call to ministry. But before we get back to that conversation, Matthew, you're going to be joining us in the fall as one of our plenary speakers at our conference on a theology of politics, Uh, And I just wanted to get your thoughts on that, why you're excited to come and uh, speak at the event, why you think it's an important topic uh, given our moments as a church and as a nation.
0: Well, I think we're in a time where it's clear that politics is, as as a lot of commentators have said, the new religion uh, of many people in our country. And one of the things about our segment of Christianity, evangelical Protestantism, is we don't have uh, a very well-developed way to think about politics. And I think we're in a a really fascinating time where there are a lot of good thinkers and a lot of good pastor theologians who are drawing on historic resources of the church to develop a a framework for thinking about Christian engagement with politics in a way that doesn't uh, allow the church to become captive to an alien agenda, but allows us to bear witness in the midst of political engagement in positive uh, ways that are faithful to the gospel. And so uh, there's a lot of difficult questions within that and and, uh, hard decisions that people have to make. But I think having that conversation uh, at CPT is going to be great for uh, those pastors and aspiring pastor theologians to, to participate in. So I'm excited.
1: Yeah, that's great. And uh, we won't hold you to anything. I know we're a few months out, but have you thought just, just a tiny little teaser on what what you're going to share uh, in, in a few months?
0: You know, the theme I keep coming back to is the theme of martyrdom. And that sounds really melodramatic. Uh, hmm. and, I, and I don't mean that we're all going to face death, but that we learn to think about political engagement in terms of witness rather than winning. Hmm. Uh, so it doesn't mean we have to be unsuccessful in certain things we do, but that rather than, than focus on how do we win, we focus on how do we bear witness to the truth in our political engagement. So uh, I'm, I'm going along those lines. Uh, I know you've got some good Augustinians there. I love sure. Augustine. Um, also really been reading a lot of, of Bonhoeffer and, um, mm-hmm. and thinking about him as well. So.
1: That's great. Conference. Yeah. If if any of our listeners uh, want to find out more about the conference, you can find all that information, including registration and questions you might have about the coronavirus um, at cptconference.com. So uh, thanks for talking to us for a little bit about that, Matthew. And let's get back now to our uh, main conversation uh, about your story and call to ministry and becoming a pastor theologian.
2: And talk to us about this calling uh, of the pastor theologian and how you're working that out on the ground in your ministry context. And one question is, is Anglicanism an easier world in which to be a pastor theologian? Matthew, do you think that's fair? Then let's say if you were, as it were, back in Southern California at Calvary Chapel is, is the Anglican communion because of its theological commitments and ecclesial structure? Is it easier to be a pastor theologian, a more hospitable culture? What, what would you say on that front? And how are, you, how are you working out your calling on the ground there?
0: Well, it, it has a richer uh, probably tradition of, of theology from, done from within the parish. Uh, mm-hmm. But at the same time, being in an urban church where we don't own a building and we've got to be scrappy. Yeah. I mean that has its own challenges that <laughs> come with it. So I think working for so I'm not since I'm not the senior pastor, I think working for a rector who values that um is huge. I think the plus side of being in an urban setting uh with and when I say urban in this context, we have a lot of highly educated people. Uh, so city center maybe is a better way to put it. Um, there's a value placed on those things. So if I want to teach classes, uh, on something very theological, um, I can do that and people are excited about it and they love it and they want to come along. Um, So it's the it's the overall context of this specific church, and then our diocese. We're in a, a diocese of about forty five churches, um, and I think that that there's a similar culture there. So to me, it's it's about culture. I think you could have
2: yeah, that's just a good like idea.
0: at Calvary Calvary Memorial, you have a culture of pastor theologian, and yeah. And, um, uh, so it's not easy though. I don't think it's easy anywhere. Um, yeah.
2: Well, that's a fact, isn't it? For those that are listening to the podcast that are eager to continue to step into that vocational identity and calling pastors that want to lean into uh, their theological calling and responsibility, any advice for them or input you have from your experience and perspective, Matthew?
0: Yeah, you know, because I I have wrestled with this a lot over the last couple of years. And um, I have come to the... This, this is going to sound bad to some people, but I've come to the conclusion of you have to put study and prayer first. Mm. And I mean that in a very practical way, like first in the day or. Mm.
2: Um, it just doesn't happen if you don't, does it?
0: It it doesn't, and you know what? The the other things are easier to squeeze in, like some of the administrative work you have to do. Um, People, you you can't move those around, but making time, whether it's blocking out the whole first three hours of your day, or the first day of the week, or something to 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 do that. I mean, I think the other thing that I've come to is I've fell fallen into patterns where I'm just responsively studying. So I've got this sermon or this class to teach and, you know, I can do that and I get those things done and they go, okay, but I'm starting to atrophy because I'm not learning new things. Yeah, And so I think if you're an intellectual person, you need a kind of free study or exploratory reading and, and study. And obviously it's, it's going to be, because of your interests and passion it's going to be somehow connected and you're going to make connections, but, but you need to think, I just want to know about this and I don't yet know what I'm going to do with it. And so finding some way to, to, to prioritize that sort of learning, even if it's a little bit, uh, to me is really important. So, um,
2: yeah, that's a great word. That's a great word. And what would you say? What would you say, Matthew, to your younger self? Let's say at your in your Biola days, uh, advice for an aspiring pastor theologian when you were in your student days. Uh, I'm thinking of the students that listen to the podcast. What input or advice would you have for them?
0: I'd say just write, and don't be afraid of it not being good enough. Ah. I mean, this is the advice that I'm still giving to myself. (laughs) Yeah. I should have at 36. I should have written a lot more than I have in some ways, but it's been, uh, perfectionism, which is rooted in a fear of failure. And Mm. I'm at this point where I've realized, you know, everything I've ever actually tried to write has been okay. And some of it's been actually good. And, um, I think if you have a passion to, to write and to do theology, the people that are, are succeeding are just, whether it's temperament or, or a gift of the spirit, they're just brave mm. and they're just putting themselves out there and they're, they're getting reps. Yeah. yeah. And so if I could go back, I would just go and get reps yeah, and great. just write stuff.
2: That's a great word. Um,
0: it doesn't have to be perfect. You're learning as you write. Mm. Um, mm. Get it. And if you do it with, if you do it for the Lord and and from a a place of prayer and attempting to be faithful to uh, Christ, just do it and put it out there and see what happens. Yeah, that's
2: a good word. I th- think of my doctoral supervisor Graham Stanton when I had finished and was looking to publish a dissertation, and and I was uh, you know like a like a typical PhD. Uh, um, person I was fretting over getting it just so and 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 polishing and polishing and polishing and perfecting, and perfecting and perfecting and perfecting and he said just send it to the publisher and keep moving get on with the next project or the next idea or the next thing that you're interested in and don't as it were fret for years and years and years yeah. because you'll never you'll Absolutely. you'll never finish that right you'll go on forever uh you know polishing uh one piece uh, because you'll never quite get it to where you you, you want it. <laughs> it, it, it. Haven't you found it to be the case, Matthew, that uh, I, I often, when I finish a writing project, I, I always have to deal with that feeling of, that didn't turn out exactly as I wanted it to. <laughs> I always have that feeling. And it's a little bit of that just coming to terms with what was in my head when I began the project. I just, you know, don't have the capacity or time or ability to bring it to full fruition so that it matches the image in my head. And you have to live with the, the humility and the circumspection to say, it's okay. By the grace of God, this will be all right and, and keep moving.
0: Yeah. And I, I mean, I've even reached this place where I want to publish more and, and have those publications, but I've also realized that my deepest desire, mm. when you strip away the ego, yes, there's also a, de- so that the good desire to help other people understand the faith, yes. but then there's, there's even something deeper and this might, this might be selfish. Maybe not everyone feels this way, but I need it for me. Yeah. Um, reading and then writing are formative Mm. to, to get clear in my mind and my heart who God is, what the scripture says, you know, the, yeah. So it's almost like, I'm not just doing it for others i'm not, I'm, I'm doing it for my own formation yeah. so well,
2: that's a great uh, word that's a great word. Reading and writing are formative that should be a bumper sticker for all pastor theologians and pastors and students for that matter. That's a marvelous marvelous way of putting it Matthew well, brother, this has been a great conversation we're We're grateful for you we're grateful for your your life, your ministry, your friendship with the CPT and partnership with us. And, and we certainly pray, uh, God's grace and blessing on you, your family and, uh, your ministry, uh, your ministry team and and your congregation in DC In such an important part of the country. And in these crazy times, uh, God's blessing to you, brother. Thanks for being with us today.
0: Thank you. I'm so thankful for the CPT and that you guys let me come in and, and it's been really, uh, it's been really important for me personally just to build a relationship. So thank you guys. Thank
2: you, Matthew. That's encouraging. Blessings, Thanks, Matthew. Blessings. Blessings to you.
0: God bless.
1: Thank you for listening to this episode of the CPT Podcast, a theology podcast for the church. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider throwing us a like, sharing the podcast online, subscribing, leaving a review. Uh, Anything like that would go a long way towards helping other people hear about the podcast. Uh, The CPT Podcast is a ministry of the Center for Pastor Theologians. You can learn more about the CPT by visiting us at pastortheologians.com. You can also find us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. Our host for today's episode was Todd Wilson. Our producer and editor was Trenton Jones. Our music was composed by Andrew Gerlicker. I'm Zach Wagner. Thanks for
0: listening.